Hello and welcome to Supervision Smorgasbord, a podcast full of tips, tricks, and interviews with experts to help you enjoy being a supervisor. Here's your host, Dr. Tara Sanderson. Well, welcome everybody today to Supervision Smorgasbord. I am here talking with Vanessa Brookhouse. She works at the DBT Clinic as a clinical director and clinician, working with adolescents and adults and a multifamily group. I ran into Vanessa through um, a, a sorts of uh, building supervision and uh, internships and all of those pieces um, with some other folks with the DBT clinic. And uh, I just have been so excited to chat with you because you are a new supervisor and um, and just kind of hearing how you got on this journey and what you think is important and valuable as you've gotten started. So welcome, Vanessa. Um, as per all of my episodes, I do have a quick question for you, my random question question for today. And today's question is, what would you wear if you didn't worry about what other people think? Oh, oh gosh, I think like 100% a muumuu, like just a giant flowy, free, nothing touching my skin. (laughs) The most vibrant colors ever. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that would be fabulous. Yes. Retirement time. I have such a sad feeling about that those went out of style at some point, right? Like was, there was a small season where like everybody was like, yes, this is wonderful. And then it went yeah. away. And mm-hmm. I feel like that does need to make a comeback. I haven't seen it at Target yet, but I also yeah. hadn't seen prairie dresses at Target in a long time. And yet they are here. So yeah, here. maybe yeah. Moomoo's will make a way back. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on board with us. And um, I would love to hear how you got started on your journey towards becoming a supervisor. Yeah. Um, so I, well, I think part of it is I, before going back to grad school in my 40s uh, and making that career change, I spent 15 years working in finance. And in that job, I was a manager and was a team leader. And so I managed a a small staff and and I always enjoyed management. Um, And so as I, I think as I started going in the clinician journey and went back and got my, my uh, master's, um, I, I sort of gravitated toward leadership roles um, and agencies and things. And so I, I was, you know, a kind of a site supervisor for a student intern um, when I was working in residential. And then when I transitioned to the DBT clinic, uh, this opportunity to become the clinical director opened up and it was a, a really good fit. So, um, and then as part of that, I wanted, you know, wanted to start supervising as well. So that was my kind of growing edge and I've really enjoyed it. It's it's really, it's it's been um, rewarding and, and a great learning opportunity for, for me <laughs> and hopefully for the, uh, the folks I'm supervising, you know, but yeah, it's really yeah. been nice. What do you think are the most um, kind of valuable things that we need to be aware of as supervisors as we're supporting new clinicians? Yeah, that's a great question. I I was thinking about it today, actually, and what I think what has surprised me the most about being a, 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 a supervisor is how often I employ the ethical decision-making model, like daily, you know, and, and I think I think it's because, you know, as new clinicians, they're they're still trying to understand where the edges of those ethics are. And so um, I think being able to guide 
clinicians through that process of thinking through these ethical dilemmas and these questions and um, is really valuable. Uh, yeah. So I, I think that's a big piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite people in the world, Roy Huggins, um, used to talk about the difference between like helping people understand something and helping and, and making people fear something. And I really value that when I'm thinking about helping interns develop their ethical modality of like, so the, the ethical rules are very well posted. I mean, you can find them anywhere on the internet, like this little rule. Um, but how we make decisions from that, because it's not it's not uh, like black and white or either or. It is very much a big gray area and uh, helping them develop their core sense of what is ethical and how do we do that without having to come at it with scare tactics that some right. ethics police is going to come find you or yeah. you're going to do the wrong thing and you're going to lose your whole career and license forever um, mm -hmm. is so important to me because decreasing that stress so that they can clearly think will help them make more ethical decisions, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I want to be careful that I'm not, I want to teach, I want to help people, you know, make decisions, not tell them what to think. Right. You know, and so it's really important that we're, we're talking through the nuances of all of these things, uh -huh. because it's, it's not like, it's much more gray than I ever would have imagined. I think, you know, once you get out of grad school and you're, you're doing the work, you're like, holy cow, there's so yeah. many shades of gray here that yeah. we never talked about <laughs> in counselor school, you know? For um, sure. Mm -hmm. For sure. And, and I think especially with COVID and, and just how quickly things have changed over the last two, two and a half, three years, it's, it's been a roller coaster. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like one of the things that I, I come up with a lot with my team uh, is is really making sure we're reading through things in order to truly understand it. So like the thing I get a lot with with new clinicians who are starting their own private practices, but they need outside supervision or whatever, is that they want to use, um, for example, simple practice. That's what we use in our in, in my practice. But the simple practice has created a bunch of like beginner documents for you to edit. And, and the initial response is, they made it so it must be okay. So I'm just going to use that. And right. one of my first like ethical principles is like, before you send something to anybody, make sure you have read that. Make sure you know what the rules in Oregon are. Make sure you know what your board's requirements are. Because they're writing a very generic piece of documentation for yeah. people to edit. And you need to make sure you edit because their release of information form does not have enough information on it for what Oregon requires. Mm -hmm. and, and kind of going through those pieces. And I, I think that helping people to recognize that like just, you know, everybody's doing things in, in the way that makes the most sense to them. And you have to make sure that you're reading all the way through it in order for it to make sure it meets the guidelines that we have in place. Right. Yeah. And I've become sort of the, the OAR whisperer. <laughs> I've learned how to read those -ish, yes. um, with some help from, you know, uh, attorneys at times, but, and, and they're so, they're so difficult to read. They're so hard to read. My goodness. And they, they contradict each other and I, it's just, it's crazy making. And then they change all the time without any notice and, Definitely a challenge. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That is an area where you could branch off and become like a trainer in how to read OARs because there are tons of people out there who absolutely mm -hmm. need some help in that area. Yeah. <laughs> For wow. sure. 
when when you have new supervisees, um, one of the things we had talked about you coming on the show and talking about was imposter syndrome. Um, mm. What are some of the things that, that you find your supervisees kind of coming up with how they how imposter syndrome show, shows up for them? Oh, yeah, honestly, I think the biggest one is around diagnosis diagnoses, right? They'll, they, I've had so many people say, well, I can't diagnose ADHD or I'm like, of course you can, <laughs> you know, you learned how to diagnose everything in that book. Um, you know, you, you, it, it tells you how to diagnose yeah. it. It walks, you know, it walks you through it. And, and I think it's almost like, you know, who's the adult in the room, right? And you're like, you are actually, you are. <laughs> yeah. You're trained to be the adult in the room. So you can make those diagnoses. You're more than qualified to make mm-hmm. them, you know, and there are times obviously when, you know, we'll want to pull in other resources and we'll want to collaborate with outside partners to make sure that we're seeing the right thing and we're not missing anything. But that isn't because we're not qualified to make the diagnoses, you know, like that's sort of our job in the field um, as LPCs. So I feel like that's a huge one. People will just not feel confident in in writing it down, you know? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And I love that, that component of really helping people recognize that if you're not feeling confident, call in other people to support you, but Mm -hmm. that doesn't take away the line of, of ability. Like you are able to do this, but maybe you're not confident in this answer because of maybe the client's presentation or there's more complications, or maybe you would just want some sort of an assessment to help confirm something you think, uh, you know, and, and that's at every level. I had yeah. some really difficult cases over the last couple of years and, and my clients looked at me and said, well, how come you're having so much trouble with this? And I said, <laughs> you know, it's a really good question. Everybody is so different and your presentation is not quite the same as what I have seen before. And I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure I'm parsing out the things that I need to be parsing out. So that's why I'm sending you to an assessment with another psychologist, because mm-hmm. I'm not going to be unbiased if I give you the assessment. <laughs> I already right. have my framework of what I think. I need somebody mm-hmm. else to take a quick look just to make sure I'm not too far off base or to help give me some guidance or to help me with some like new ways of thinking about it so that we can continue our work and grow. And I don't mm-hmm. think that that stops at any level of mental health world, right? From LPCs to students all the way up to psychiatrists and, and other folks. We all should be consulting when we don't feel like we've got it quite right yet. We should consult and figure out those pieces. 100%. And I remember what was so powerful was when I was in grad school um, and we were doing the diagnostic class, you know, um, my professor said, um, you know, she she said she used to, you know, she was an LPC, but also had gotten her PhD. But um, she said working as an LPC in the the clinics, um, the the psychiatrist had said, you're the assessment, like you're the assessment phase. I'm looking to you to diagnose because the LPCs have had that specific training. And, and I was like, whoa, whoa, like that's our job, you know? And so for me, it was really, it was a little scary, but also very empowering. Like that, that is what we're trained to do. And we have the expertise to do that. And so I think just reminding people, you know, like you, you've read all the books, all the knowledge is there. So, you know, you're not pulling it out of the ether. This is based on that. That's your clinical judgment, right? That's based on all of that training and learning and everything that you did in grad school. And so just starting to trust it a little, you know, mm-hmm. is super important. Yeah. And keeping that education flowing. One of the things that I do in my practice is every month we pick a diagnosis from the DSM and we just read through it together as as part of our didactic training. And sometimes it is so valuable for me that as I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, that has a three month timeline. 
I forgot about that part. Okay, now let me think about my clients who have that and make sure that it still fits, right? And make sure that I'm I am diagnosing appropriately for that piece of it. Or sometimes it's ones that like we just don't see very often in my clinic. So it's an opportunity for us to be like, okay, none of us feel like we have anybody on our caseload with this. What does it look like? How would we see this present in our space? Like it Uh says these five things, but what would that look like if a human was coming in? And let's describe it and see what what kinds of things we come up with. Because it's so important to remember that we can't have all of this memorized. And, you know, there are some things that become become easier over time, but that is a big book. And it's really Uh important to keep reading it and keep looking at those those pieces. And that's part of, I think, what builds confidence in our supervisees is helping to remind them, you don't have to have this memorized. You don't need to like know for certain immediately when you meet a human, but this is a, this is a, a, a process of assessment yeah. to get to the diagnosis and to set the treatment plan and move that forward. And I, something I appreciate, I guess, about um, outpatient is, you know, I felt like in residential, there was there was more pressure, I guess, um, to kind of figure things out more quickly. But I feel like we do have some time here, you know, and um, and so we can start with, you know, one assessment and, and sort of one idea, hypothesis of what's going on. But as we get more information, you know, we're always assessing. Assessment never ends. And so we can always update and change as, as we go along and we get to know the client better and they start to open up more, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I'm also big on, you know, um, taking our time, getting to the right diagnosis. You know, we can have a placeholder, we can have a rule out, and then we can get to where we need to get to, you know. Absolutely. I use my knee as an example for a lot of my supervisees that like when I first went in with knee pain, my doctor's like, well, maybe you strained something. So like put down on my diagnosis strained, did all of the physical therapy stuff, still hurts. Hmm, let's get an x-ray. So he got an x-ray and he goes, ah, I see some arthritis in there. We're going to change your diagnosis to arthritis in your knee. I was like, great. Now what I do? Um, Cortisone shot and physical therapy. Okay, so go and do that. And then when it still didn't heal, he's like, well, let's get an MRI. Let's dig deeper, right? Let's Mm -hmm. keep asking more questions. Let's keep looking for more stuff till we get to that place, right? And I think that that's that if we can shift our mentality from I have to get it right the first time to Mm -hmm. we're going to go with the information we have until we get more information. And then when things change or things aren't working quite right, we're going to do another evaluation and see what's next and keep digging and going and going until we get there, right? And that's a huge part of this journey because some Mm -hmm. of the diagnostic criteria last for a short time, some of them last for a long time, some of them change over time. And it's, it's super important for us to be flexible in that journey. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think the other piece that is maybe unique to my clinic is, um, you know, we do tend to, being a DBT clinic, we do tend to get a higher acuity of clients. Um, and so I think that is a bit of a learning curve for some of the um, associates um, that we get, you know, just if they're not used to seeing that. And so that's a, yeah, I think that that also can have, you know, lead to some anxiety and fear, you know, in, in the associates as they first start, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when I'm thinking higher acuity, I'm thinking that there might be some self-interest behavior. There might be some suicidal ideation. There might be some um, kind of uh, big emotional disruption kinds of pieces that personality maybe, disorders yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. that may be completely new to right. a, an associate as they're coming on board, depending on where their you know placements have been before that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So that that that, that has sometimes been a little bit of a, a shocker. I think you know when they they sit in the first few consults and they hear the clients that we're talking about, they're like, whoa, you know. Yeah. Um, but you know, we're we have what's great is that we we do work as a consultation model, so we have a lot of support, not just me as a supervisor, but all of their colleagues. And you know, we do a two hours you know consult every week where we're talking about clients and we're getting you know interventions, and so it's it's really lovely. You know, there's a lot of support to um, help with these clients you know they're the associates are not alone you know we're all in that together so it's it's very collaborative that's awesome what do you guys recommend for your associates as they are kind of getting started to take care of themselves uh, well, we talk, a, I mean, we talk a lot about self-care, you know, at the beginning of our consult, we always do mindfulness. And so we, we are a very mindfulness-based practice. Um, and, you know, I think as we are onboarding, you know, uh, starting client or new associates, we're definitely aware of the type of clients that we're sending to them. We're trying to make sure there's a good mix, mm-hmm. you know, that they're not ending up with too many clients that are self-injurious or have suicidal ideation, because obviously that can lead to burnout. So we're very, we talk a lot about burnout. We're very cognizant of burnout. It's one of the scales that we check in on every week where nice. the level of burnout is in the, on our, in our studs, you know? So, um, yeah, it's kind of a constant conversation, which yeah. I think is helpful. Yeah. yeah. I think it all has to be. Yeah. Not only <laughs> with your population, but just with our industry in general, I think it has mm-hmm. to be um, more than just you need to do this. It needs to be more of a plan of how are you doing this? How are you doing with your self-care plan and whatever that entails? When I chat with my um, my residents and my other folks, I'm, I'm always kind of curious of like the holistic package. Like, what are you doing emotionally for care? What are you doing physically for care? What are you doing spiritually for care? Like, mm-hmm. how are you, how is your little ball of human doing in all of these areas knowing that it always flexes right some seasons we're really good at exercise some seasons we are not um Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know sometimes we're (laughs) really good at you know going to our own therapy and sometimes we pause because you know finances or other types of things so it's to me it's it's more of a not not accountability in that they have to be perfect at it by any means but accountability in that somebody's asking and checking in and reminding that it's important and figuring mm-hmm. out ways to help you navigate that. We have had to do a lot of adjustment of schedule over the last year, uh, just because mm-hmm. the pandemic's been so hard. And um, and some of my people were doing grad school and internship doing during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So they've been trying to figure out like how to breathe after graduation and, and move into the next stages. So we've done a lot of like schedule changes to say like, What's, what's the real minimum number that my practice needs in order for mm-hmm. you to be here and do your job, but also for you to be functional? Because yeah. it's not going to do anybody any good if you're not functional. And then then as we make those adjustments, what are you doing to care for yourself in that? Like how, what mm-hmm. other, what things are you building in, in that time that I've released you from? What are you mm-hmm. building in to care for yourself? Even if that is just like lay down and rest for an extra hour every morning. Like that's that's a great part of everyone's self-care plan as far as I'm concerned. Sleeping in, done, good, good idea. (laughs) Add that. (laughs) And I would say that's something that, you know, we, our productivity numbers tend to be lower because we are aware um, of the higher amount of burnout. And, and, you know, and usually there's a lot, there, there could be a lot of effort, you know, that comes with our clients that we, um, offer after hours coaching, phone coaching, support, yeah. you know, sometimes there's, um, 
work in the community to get additional supports around our clients. And so there's a lot of stuff that happens outside the therapy room um, yeah. to support the clients. And so we, you know, recognize that, obviously. Yeah. 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 And I think that is so valuable, valuable, especially for new, newer clinicians into the industry or newer, even to this population in the industry of, mm-hmm. of building like this whole picture of, you know, these are the, this is the acuity of our clients. This is the intensity of the work. And this is why we're doing our caseloads in this way, because we need to help manage the fact that this is, this is intense stuff. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. great. We had also talked about wanting to uh, spend a little time talking about clinical documentation. And mm. I am so excited. I know that not everybody nerds out about documentation like I do, but <laughs> but I love it. So I'm so excited to hear about like what you guys do or what your expectations are and both from like what you expect of a supervisee and maybe what you expect of supervisors um, at your guys' clinic. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I mean, so in general, I, I think, you know, we, so we um, fall under a certificate of approval. So there are several things that are very spelled out, you know, and, and we don't really have a lot of flexibility with, right? But, um, you know, we've created sort of a template for our mental health assessments. Typically, they take, you know, at least two, maybe three appointments to complete fully, you know, and, and it's really a biosocial kind of um you know, history, right? So we're looking at presenting problems, you know, history of the problem, family history, medical history. So we're asking, a, you know, a variety of things. Um, and then all kind of, you know, funneling down to a diagnosis, um, at least a starting point, and then um, getting a, a good sense of what the client wants to work on, what their goals are, you know? Mm-hmm. So the first one to two appointments, maybe even three, would be the assessment, the mental health assessment, and then we move into the treatment plan. Um, and ideally, you know, what we're trying to do is is review those treatment plans every six months, um, up, making updates or changes as we need to. Typically, we'll we'll have maybe just two goals, but we'll have several measurable, you know, objectives under those goals. Um, and you know, when you're talking about like goals are, are typically, you know. Um, you know, to stop screaming at my loved ones or something, right? You know, I mean, so emotion regulation, there's a lot that needs to happen to get to the point where you can control those outbursts, you know? And so that one goal could take six months easily, you know? Um, so we, we try not to overwhelm it. You know, we really want to focus on what's important to the client um, and what, what brought them here, you know? Um, and then, you know, after six months, we'll check in and maybe we'll, you know, that, that goal is completed. Maybe we'll add a new one or maybe we're ready to take a break from treatment, you know? Um, and then uh, our, you know, we, we typically do sort of adapt note. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, I think the, you know, the rule of thumb, which sounds really arbitrary, but, you know, sort of one intervention every 15 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. But I would say, you know, DBT is such a, it's, it's a, it's a pretty interactive type of treatment. And so there's typically plenty of interventions. So it's really yeah. just capturing the key ones that that really kind of mattered in the moment. Um, and I, what I like to see as a supervisor is I, I like to be able to, I like to understand what happened in the session. Why did you intervene? What was your purpose? What was your intent? Mm. What were you trying to achieve? And then how did the client respond to that? You uh-huh. know, were they, were they open to responsive to it? Were they not responsive? You know, did it land? Did it not? Um, And then what did you do after that? Right? Like, I really, I want to kind of, it's almost like a fly on the wall. I want to kind of know what happened um, through the session. And 
um, I have, you know, I think there's varying skills of people, you know, um, but, but man, yeah, I have some clinicians that just write beautiful zap notes, you know, and I, I know exactly what happened in that session and it's a beautiful thing Uh (laughs) to get to, you know? Yeah. 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 And it does take time and it takes a lot of, um, energy to, um, to, to figure out and formulate in a way that like makes the most sense to you and makes the most sense to whomever else reads the notes. Um, Mm -hmm. and in keeping that in mind of like the purpose of these notes is to, to document the treatment that happened and Mm -hmm. that that could maybe go forward to the client if that was what they needed or wanted or whatever, or to an insurance company or to whatever, like wherever it ends up going, it should have documented the treatment appropriately to say, this is what happened. This is what I did. And this is where we're going next and, and be able to be read by whomever and have it be clear. And I, I think that that part is one of the, the really important Uh, aspects of how we as supervisors help folks navigate their notes, but also I think is one of the pieces that gets so messy and hard for our new supervisees, right? They have this like fear of missing information. So they put too much or they don't want anybody to like, you know, get offended or or, like have anything go wrong. So they don't put enough. And there's this Mm -hmm. like, we we really have this magic area where we, where we're kind of like, okay, we want to know enough of what happened to understand what you did and why you did it. And then how the client responded as we go through this kind of narrative piece. Yeah. And I will say, I I think for me, it's been a a bit of a learning curve too, because coming from residential where I was working with with kids who were, um, you know, on parole or probation, I didn't want to write a whole lot because I knew that their PO was going to read every one of those. And I, I felt that they deserved some modicum of privacy, you know? And so I've had to kind of relearn, sorry, Mm -hmm. I had to kind of relearn how to write notes for an outpatient setting that isn't necessarily going to be subpoenaed by a, you know, a PO. Yeah. And that's such a great point that setting to setting is going to have different pieces. So it doesn't matter how great you are at your notes in your internship placement. You, you might need to learn how to do it completely differently at your next job or at, you know, whatever type of setting you're in next because of because of who the readers might be or because of how that supervisor is. And, it, you know, a tip that I would give to supervisees is really just learn to be flexible. There is no one right way to write notes. You are never going to become the like master of all note writing practices. <laughs> like you are going to just learn and adapt to every type of situation that you're going to be in as a clinician. Right. And I, I think as a new supervisor, one thing I've sort of struggled with is, you know, am I am I giving feedback because of a preference or because of something that is like you know, legal and needed. And, yeah. and I'm still kind of playing with that, right? Because yeah. I, there definitely are some where like, oh God, I really love more paragraphs here because it's kind of hard to read, but is that really important? No, not really. <laughs> you know, so I want to yeah. make sure that I'm not nitpicky. Like people, I want to give people the freedom to to be able to do their notes in a way that makes sense for them. And that is easy. Like I obviously don't want it to take hours and hours and hours of your time. 
and it needs to, there are some parameters that it has to meet, you know, yeah. just to, to be in compliance. So absolutely. How, how do you do that? That's a piece I would be curious about. Yeah. I, I tell my interns and my supervisees all the time that I have different hats that I wear for different things. And usually in session, if there's a question of that, like as I'm reviewing a note or giving them feedback or whatever, sometimes I'll be like, this is my boss hat. This doesn't meet the requirement for insurance notes. So you have to do this again in this is what needs to be in there and then I'll have my supervisor hat that I put on and say like and as a supervisor like this note is fine for insurance but here's what's missing as a supervisor like this is what I'm this is what I'm still digging out like I'm curious and I want to know more because you didn't put enough meat in here for me to like get the whole session right and then here's my personal hat of like now I'm just super curious and like why did you do it this way? Because that's not at all how I would do it as a human, right? And, you know, and I really try and tell them when I'm switching hats, like, this is a federal requirement, or this is a legal requirement. So my boss hat is on. That's what you're getting right now. You know, this is my cl my clinical hat of like, I'm trying to get how you're thinking or, or what's needed more to get in here. And this is what I would recommend that you write instead of this, which has nothing to do with federal or legal and it's not personal, but it's very much like you're missing a chunk here. And this is, this is an area where I need you to develop this thing or just me. Right. I, I tell my team all the time that I don't ever read for grammar. Uh, I'm terrible with grammar. <laughs> like it's just not my, it's not my cup of tea. So if you're looking for feedback on that part, I am not the right person. We should get someone else to help us with notes if that's what you're looking for. But content, like we can do content. Um, and because I've had my, my supervisees read my notes sometimes for like, this is the level of what I'm looking for for different things and give them some of that access. Um, and, um, and for feedback from them, I love it when they give me feedback of stuff that was missing or, or what mm -hmm. have you. Um, so, so that, you know, in, in just thinking of a, a, a tool that someone could use, like that could be a really cool tool of like helping them understand to the process of reading someone else's note, seeing what's missing, trying to figure out if that's your stuff that you want to know versus what's actually necessary and having yeah. them read each other's or your notes in that process to kind of be a part of some of that feedback. I don't currently do a ton of that, but I could see that being super helpful for, especially for those folks who have a tendency towards um, like needing to know the perfect way of doing something or the like in, the like entirety of the rule and the reason behind the rule versus people who are more like maybe spirit of the law kind of people um, that have if you had somebody who really wanted to know that intensity it might that might be a great activity for them to find this gray area and really mm -hmm. understand why it's complicated and there's no one right answer yeah I know that I think that would be really rich I could see that you know I there, um, currently I have kind of three supervisees that are LPCs and then I have two that are CSWAs. So I'm their site supervisor, but we've uh, hired someone to be their plan supervisor, um, who actually used to be my, my supervisor at my old place. So I, we Cute. have, we're very, yeah, it's great. Um, but I do think like with the five of them, there's such a variance, there's such a variety. It would be really interesting for us all to just bring it to the table and go, okay, what do you think? Like, what are the pros and cons? What, what are the differences we're seeing? Like, you know, um, cause I don't think, yeah, I don't think any of them would be like illegal or whatever, you know, right. but, but yeah. it's just different, you know, and it might be really interesting for people to see all the differences that could still be considered fine, uh -huh. you know? Uh -huh. yeah. 
Yeah, that would be super fun. A long time ago, I guess it wasn't a long time ago, maybe a couple of years ago, um, I did a notes um, consultation group where we all got together and we watched a video of somebody's of some not supervision, somebody's actual like a clinical session with appropriate con you know uh, consent from clients, blah blah blah. But um, uh, we watched the session and then we all wrote our own note on our own template. Um, about that session as if we were the clinician um, trying to capture like what did people capture of the mm. different interventions we did or um, how the client responded to things or see what they noticed and see the different style because the people in that group one of them was very psychodynamic oriented one of them mm. um, I'm very behavioral yeah. oriented so mine was different from that um, and I think there were a couple of other folks that I, I can't remember their orientations but just seeing the different like format of their note that they used in their mm -hmm. practice, right? But also just the different things that each person picked up on was so interesting and so powerful for mm -hmm. all of us to kind of rethink this, the meaning of how we do our notes and doing them correctly, right? right. To more of this, this opportunity to say like, this is also an expression of our theoretical orientation. This is an yeah. expression of the different interventions that we use and how we use them down to the level of like, maybe even education or how they did in, in grammar in school. <laughs> like there were definitely some areas where I looked at it and was like, man, I feel like I read like a fourth grader in comparison to you, <laughs> um, yeah. because, you know, just word choice and things that we've kind of gotten into the rhythm of. Um, and that was a really fun experience, especially because we, we were all doing it off of the same session. Yeah, that's it wasn't about different people doing things in their own thing. It was really just the same session. And that was a really fun experience. Right. Yeah. I'll just, yeah, that would be really cool. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate the idea. Yeah, That's absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys tape your sessions at all? So um, we do. We do have that. Um, so it's interesting that the licensed staff, actually, we do once a month, we do um, a kind of a supervision um, and we take turns taping sessions and presenting them. Nice. Um, I have, I've, I've had more resistance from the associates taping sessions, so I'm still working on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, we do. And it's great. We just, you know, I just watched a video of a colleague today and, you know, it was um, really interesting, fascinating, you know, all the different insight and different perspectives on this client. And, right. Yeah. It's really rich. I, I know that it is like the one of between role play and taping <laughs> sessions. Like they're the things that therapists hate, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're so so valuable, right? Yeah. I really would love to reinstitute uh, taping at my practice and and having people. I love the idea of once a month we we take one client, you know, mm -hmm. and once a month we just share that with people so that you're not feeling like you're taping all the time, but that you're taping enough to like be comfortable in front of the mm -hmm. camera, right? Because that's a part of it. But also yeah. that, you know, we're getting that feedback and sharing on something that's real and not just um, our memory, like our individual memory of what happened in a session three weeks ago, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's, I think that's so valuable. That's definitely something I want to bring back. Yeah. I mean, because I'm finding as, you know, as a supervisor, I'm, I'm trying to give the clinician's feedback based on my understanding of a note, you know, yeah. and I'm, I'm certainly could be missing, you know, so it would be really rich to be able to watch the session and be yeah. able to, you know, now, why did you do that? What were you thinking here? What was your intention here? You know, I think that that would definitely um, enhance the supervision. So I'm, it's one of my goals for next year. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. I will figure out a way to help ask questions about that sometime next year and be like, where are you at with your plan? <laughs> yeah. How can we help? 
I we love do. it when people hold me accountable to things that I think are really important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, tell me a little bit about your multifamily group. I know you wanted to make sure that you chatted about that experience on here. And um, yeah, share with me that. Yeah, so uh, my colleague Mika and I have been running this now for about a year and a half. This will be our third cohort. Um, And it's really awesome. We're using the um, Adolescent DBT manual as our manual. And so what we've done is we are pulling together five, four to five adolescents, and they each have a learning partner, which is typically one of the parents, but Uh not necessarily. Um, And both the adolescent and the learning partner have a copy of the the same book, right? So we're all learning from the same curriculum. Uh Um, We we meet once a week because we find it's hard to get, you know, teens and parents in the same room more than once a week. Um, And it's a 90 minute group. So so the first uh, 45 to 50 minutes is learning new materials. Mm-hmm. And then we have a, a break and then we come back and we go into breakout rooms and we have, um, I usually facilitate the parents while my colleague Mika facilitates the adolescents. And that's where we do the homework review and kind of discussion about, yeah, so that they're not having to talk about homework review in front of the parent, just in case that, you know, sometimes there's some anxiety there, but yep. Um, it's really been, you know, the first two cohorts were so different. And I think part of it was, um, age, the second cohort was a little bit younger than the first. And so, Uh you know, they were more middle school, whereas the first was definitely more high school. And, um, so that changes the the dynamics a little bit, but, you know, it, it really has just been, my hope was to kind of replicate residential at home in an outpatient setting. And the only thing, way I could think of doing that was to teach the parents the skills so that the parents also know them and can, can practice alongside, you know, so I really um, encourage the the kids to give the parents feedback and vice versa, you know, I encourage the parents to say, I'm so frustrated, I don't know what I can do and see if they can, you know, the kid can help them and remind them of the skills they have for, you know, um, de-escalation and so that's, that's the goal, um, you know, and, and I think it's been really promising so far. We've gotten really great feedback. People seem to enjoy it, um, and they, uh, you know, they stick with it. Um, so it's been really rewarding. It's an exciting group. That is amazing. How long does the group run? Is it like a full year? Is it? It takes about, I think it's a little over six months. So it's probably, okay. because, you know, sometimes we get like a holiday here and there and that yeah. sort of thing. And uh, so it, it ends up being maybe six and a half seven months, you know, in total to run through the whole thing. And then um, they, the um, youth are also working individually with a clinician at the clinic, um, not necessarily one of us. So yeah, it's been really great. I've really enjoyed it. Um, We're hoping eventually we can start maybe a second group so we could have them running like three months apart because the need is so huge, right? Like we always have a million people on our wait list and and we can't serve them all, which is such a bummer. But Yeah. yeah, I, I've really enjoyed doing it in this fashion, having the parents involved. And, you know, so it's not like go fix my kid. It's like the system is getting support, which I think is super important. So important. And I think it's a thing that um, that gets gets lost a lot, especially if the parent is requesting that their child attend therapy. It becomes like this is about them and they do all of this stuff. Right. Like they're going to get fixed in here somehow. 
Right. And really, it's like, well, they don't have all of the power yet. <laughs> so we nope. kind of need you involved in this process to be able to be a part of the system that helps them get better in a way that like both of you are happy with or mm-hmm. you know in, in whatever fashion we can we can help them navigate that so I love that um how often do you guys have openings in your group is it a closed group or um or is it open and and revolving so it is we are doing this more in a cohort model mm-hmm. so it is a closed group um our next cohort is is looking to start um early January um and so yeah so I think we, we might have one more opening, um, but otherwise, yeah, we're filling up quickly for that. Yeah, I and then, yeah um, but like I said, I'm hoping that, that we will have the staff to be able to do maybe a second cohort, you know, March, April, so we can kind of run them, you know, concurrently or whatever. But yeah, yeah. that would be awesome. Yeah. That's and great. what I found too, it's interesting, sometimes the youth is more jazzed about it than the parent. Sometimes the parent gets more out of it than the youth, but as long as one of them get something out of it, it seems to be enough to like get the change going, you know? So I'll take it. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Any change moving forward is good. So just got to keep looking for all those little baby steps forward. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. If people are interested in referring somebody there to the multifamily group, whenever it has openings again, and depending Mm -hmm. on when this comes out in the podcast, you know, (laughs) circle, um, where would they go to find out more or to, um, or to let you know? So they can go to our our website. Um, If you just look up the DVT Clinic Portland, you'll find us. Um, And we're actually unveiling our new website pretty soon. So pretty excited about that. We've been working really hard on it. Um, Or you can, uh, and you can um, fill, actually there, there's a form you can fill out and gives you all the information. So that's probably the best place. Yeah. Perfect. And we'll drop those links in our show notes and make sure everybody can see all of your cool stuff. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming. I feel like we have several really great takeaways for people in how that they can um, how they can help interns as or interns and supervisees um, develop that that core sense of confidence and kind of push away some of that imposter syndrome stuff. Um, and then thinking about di- documentation and ways that both supervisors and supervisees can like think about things differently and maybe even affect change by helping each other with those notes and, and getting some of those experiences on both sides. I'm really excited to, to see how that blesses your practice. And um, I'm, I'm excited to rekindle this thought of taping in mind. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm right on the same page with you. We'll, we'll see what we can do in 2023. All right. Well, is there anything else um, that you want to make sure to let us know about before we close up today? I just I um, I'm excited about the board changes that they're they're kind of decreasing the DCC. That's always been such a high number yes. and high standard. And, um, you know, and I, I think I'm not concerned about, you know, the lack of supervision. I think 1900 DCC is still a lot of supervision. So I feel like I don't think it's going to decrease the quality of care that people will get. And I think that it more closely matches other states in the U.S. So I'm glad they made that change. Yeah, I am really excited too. Yeah, or making that change. I'm really excited too to see how that impacts our our ability to keep folks here in Oregon. I think that we identified several years ago that like some of our, our, 
very large expectations of our <laughs> clinicians caused some hardship that made people want to leave Oregon, which then made you know it, it almost impossible for everybody to get their needs met here in Oregon. And so, mm -hmm. if we can if we can help in this way and adjust some of those hours, um, you know, then then maybe that'll help folks stay, and that'll help folks continue to serve the awesome Oregonians that we have here. Yeah, I hope so. Hope so. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for joining us and thank you everybody for listening. I hope you grabbed a couple of tasty morsels today and we'll see you next time. Well, 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 we meet again. I hope that that was a tasty morsel for today. Here are a few of our key takeaways. Number one, adding the taping of sessions to your practice. If it is possible at all to tape your supervisees doing their therapy, it can be extremely beneficial, especially for programs that need fidelity like DBT. It can be really powerful to be able to catch things in the moment and give feedback based on what is happening with those folks. I know that uh, a long time ago, we used to use the, um, what was it called? The bug in the ear kind of scenario where they would watch through a two-way glass. And I'm sure that some practices still do that. But being able to watch through a video is at least better than not uh, being able to watch it all and by just doing things by report. So if you can figure out a way to add taping into your practice in some way, that would be great. I will say it has gotten a lot easier over time because of telehealth because you can have, have um, taping of sessions be a lot easier in that process. Two things to, to think about when you do that, though, of course, is make sure you have consent to the client to go through that process. And number two, make sure you have a really clear safeguard on how to store all of those things. If you would like tips on how to do that, you can run over to my website and I've got a little cheat sheet of tips on how to support clients um, and support client safety and support HIPAA security um, on taping those things. I also want to give you a new, well, I guess it's not new, uh, a cool tool called DreamMaker.io that was built for the purpose of clinical supervision through video recording. And uh, they make it so easy to be able to have your videos almost codified to be able to say like, oh, here's an area where I saw a facial inspection, uh, a facial expression, or here's an area where I saw this thing, or here's the tool that you used here. And you can give a lot of like really cool feedback on there. So I have the link on the website for DreamMaker.io. The second takeaway is read through all your documents. Take time today to grab one document that you send to your clients or one document that you send to your supervisee and just read through it with fresh eyes. See if it still works for you. See if everything on there is still accurate. Make sure that you are checking the documents that you use for accuracy and for making sure that they still meet the standards that we need them to. Uh, if you need help with that, Dr. Melissa McCaffrey, uh, from QA Prep, helps folks with documentation all the time. Her link is on my website. Uh, feel free to check her out. Third tool, or third tip for today, is uh, to challenge your supervisees to reread the DSM diagnostic codes. Look over the list of your supervisee's caseload and see how they're diagnosing folks. Give them a give them a homework assignment of rereading a diagnostic code and making sure that it fits for that person. One of the things that I know about all of us clinicians is we get into a rut sometimes and we just kind of assume that things are still okay and things are still the way that they're supposed to be and, and we shouldn't. We really do need to make sure that we keep checking those guidelines and keep checking those practices and that we're modeling that with our supervisees and asking them to do the same. Whew. 
Well, if you are interested in being on the show as a guest or if you have questions that you would like answered on the show, you can drop me a line on my website. And until next time, folks, take care. This has been Supervision Smorgasbord with Dr. Tara Sanderson. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can find us at drterrasanderson.com backslash podcast and on all social media at Dr. Tara Sanderson. Thank you and we will see you next time.